The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 43, Magna Carta. When we refer to the Magna Carta, we specifically refer to the first version issued at Runnymede, which is an area of grassland adjacent to the River Thames in the English county of Surrey. It was issued in the year 1215 by English barons in a bid to set down some rules which prevented anyone, including the actual monarch themselves, from being above the law. The story of the Magna Carta is also the story of a man who is labelled by history as a bad king. The man is King John, younger brother of Richard the Lionheart and son of Henry II of England and grandfather of Edward I, all of whom are considered as great English monarchs. So what went wrong for King John during his reign? that led to the barons of feudal England demanding a charter be signed which restricted the rights of the king and protected the laws of the land. During our episodes about the Crusades, we were introduced to the Plantagenet dynasty of rulers. The Plantagenets originated from the county of Anjou, a county within the Kingdom of France, Due to the influence of the Plantagenets, their marriage alliances and the possessions of the monarch of England, the early Plantagenet rulers ruled over lands collectively referred to as the Angevin Empire. We need to go back to the Count of Anjou from 1129, Geoffrey Plantagenet, John's grandfather, to understand the origins of the Angevin Empire the Plantagenet dynasty and its relationships with the Kingdom of France and the Kingdom of England. Geoffrey would be the Count of Anjou, but also of Men and of Touraine. They were three neighbouring counties landlocked in the northern half of modern France, and all three counties were within the contemporary Kingdom of France. In other words, the King of France was the overlord, to these three counties. Geoffrey would acquire the Duchy of Normandy to the north of his heartlands, taking advantage of the civil war in England. Normandy was also a French possession. After Geoffrey's death, all of his realms passed down to his son, Henry Kurt Mantle. Henry's marriage is very significant. He married Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was actually the Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right. Aquitaine was also a part of the Kingdom of France, but Eleanor had actually been married to the French King Louis VII before the marriage became unfavourable for both parties and was annulled. 
Louis must have been displeased to discover that Eleanor had married Henry, meaning that the lands from Normandy in the north to Aquitaine in the south were now under Henry's influence, and worse still, he had been promised the throne of England on King Stephen of England's death. When Henry became King Henry II of England in 1154, he would become one of the most influential kings that the continent had ever seen. Henry had also secured influence over the lands of Brittany in the west, which at the time were not actually within France's direct influence, so the Plantagenet realms, which originated within the Kingdom of France, were now extended beyond France's borders, something that would have been of great concern to the French king. It was also at this time, in the year 1166, that John, the youngest son of Henry and Eleanor, was born. The lands of Henry II's vast empire had already been apportioned to the sons already born, John's older brothers, so John had to go without, which gave him the moniker John Lackland. Henry II had his eldest son by Eleanor that was still alive, crowned in 1170 as the junior king of England, and he would therefore be known as Henry the Young King. The next son was Richard, who would be promised the Duchy of Aquitaine, the domain of his mother, Eleanor. The third living son was Geoffrey, and he would be prepared to be the Duke of Brittany. Finally, there was John. Henry the Young King unexpectedly died from dysentery while campaigning in France at the age of 28. Richard would therefore become the heir to the English throne and Henry would encourage Richard to surrender his promised lands in Aquitaine as a consequence so that they could be promised to John. Richard was not willing to allow this, so John had to be content with the title Lord of Ireland, although the Plantagenet influence in Ireland was restricted to a small area called the Pale, which centred on the city of Dublin. King Henry sent John to Ireland to expand the territory, but he offended the natives by treating them disrespectfully. In 1186, Geoffrey, Duke of Brittany, died at the young age of 27, and this left Henry and Eleanor with just two sons alive, Richard and John. Henry and Eleanor had become estranged from one another many years before when Eleanor supported the revolt of Henry the Young King against his father, leading to Henry having Eleanor imprisoned. Eleanor was close to her son Richard, and Richard spent many of the years of his mother's imprisonment in rebellion against his father, King Henry II. As Eleanor favoured Richard, so Henry favoured John. John was always Henry's favourite son. When Henry was reaching his final years, more and more people defected to the side of Richard, knowing that it was only a matter of time before Richard would replace his father. They did not want to be on the wrong side of the new king when he acceded, and the most important defector was King Henry II's own favourite son, John. John 
had turned against his father and his father's heart was broken. Richard became Richard I of England on the passing of his father Henry II and Richard would free his mother Eleanor of Aquitaine from imprisonment. Despite John switching to Richard's side, Richard knew what John's game was and knew that he was not a trustworthy character. As we know from previous episodes, Richard went on crusade to the Holy Land after the rise of Saladin, the Ayyubid Sultan, threatened the crusader states in the Middle East. Richard was keen to crusade, but was very wary that the King of France, who was now Louis VII's son Philip, who ruled as Philip II, would likely see Richard's absence as an opportunity to reassert French superiority over the Angevins. So Richard and Philip agreed to crusade together, with Richard leaving William de Longchamp as the Lord Chancellor of England. John was told to stay away from England while Richard was away. King Philip II of France departed from the Crusader States earlier than Richard, and John saw an opportunity to join forces with Philip in order to take advantage of Richard's absence and plot Richard's deposition from power. When Richard finally returned from his long and arduous journey back from the Holy Land, John would switch allegiances and side with Richard against Philip. Richard would forgive John's misdemeanours and announce John as his official heir. Throughout his life, John had demonstrated that his loyalty was only worth something while it favoured him, and maybe that was wise on John's part. John was also noted for his abilities as a military commander, but this was not enough for some to not be troubled by putting their faith in John as a viable prospect as king. King John Before Richard had declared John as his heir, he had already declared his nephew as heir too. Richard's nephew was the son of his younger brother, Geoffrey, and his name was Arthur. Arthur would inherit his father's designation as the Duke of Brittany, and in many of the Angevin Empire's territories, Arthur was a more popular choice as the Angevin Emperor than John, but this is likely to be because Arthur was still a child, and nobles would fancy their chances of manipulating circumstances to their favour with a child king rather than with John as king. When Richard suddenly died and unexpectedly in 1199, John would become the king and Arthur had to settle for rejection. As a young man, John was his father's favourite and may have often been used to getting his own way. As a king, John believed that he was at liberty to do what he liked and get away with it, but he would soon learn that his choices had consequences. During his father's reign, John was betrothed to the daughter of William Fitzrobert, the second Earl of Gloucester. A few years after the betrothal, William Fitzrobert died, and King Henry II declared that Fitzrobert's estate passed down to his daughter Isabella, and as such, John would become the Earl of Gloucester himself when they did eventually marry. After John became the king, 
it was clear that many of the nobles of the Angevin lands in the Kingdom of France preferred Arthur as Richard's successor, and John saw this situation as a threat to his supremacy. So what he did next would create ripples in the water that would quickly catch up with him. Firstly, he would have his marriage with the Countess of Gloucester annulled on the basis of consanguinity, in other words because they were too closely related. He then promptly married the young daughter of the Count of Angoulême, with Angoulême being a county within the Duchy of Aquitaine, all of which were territories under the French crown. The problem with this choice is that the young girl, also called Isabella, had already been betrothed to Hugh Le Brun de Lusignan, and John's boldness caught the attention of the French king, Philip II. Philip had a distrust of John, but there was a treaty between the two men which kept the peace between the two kingdoms of France and England. However, the nobles within France petitioned to Philip to take action against John's marriage to the daughter of the Count of Angoulême, and so Philip summoned John to account for his actions. Philip had the power to do this because all of John's lands were in the Kingdom of France, apart from Brittany and England, and they were under feudal law. So Philip was John's overlord. So when John did not respond to the summons, Philip confiscated John's lands and backed the cause of Arthur of Brittany to become the King of England. John decided to defend his French territories and in the process he would need to rescue his elderly mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who had been besieged by the teenager Arthur of Brittany. John successfully freed his mother and captured Arthur and his younger sister, Eleanor, fair maid of Brittany. Arthur was said to have been murdered by King John after a fit of rage, and his sister Eleanor would remain captive for the rest of her life. Arthur's disappearance caused outrage in France, so much so that John would have to retreat to England, leaving Philip and the local rulers to remove John's rule over French lands. Just the southern portion of Aquitaine remained in John's hands, but Normandy and the territories around Anjou were lost. The Angevin Empire had been dramatically reduced. John did recognise the fact that he was now on the back foot, and so he had turned his attention into consolidating what he did have, and that was the fruitful Kingdom of England. If he was able to govern England effectively, then he would be able to rely on the loyalty of his subjects and raise enough money to rebuild his reputation and his land holdings. However, John always suffered from a flippant attitude towards people of rank. He didn't care who he upset, regardless of their importance, and that would include the English barons. Often, John would not support his barons in their legal disputes with their subjects, and he would also enforce scootage, which was a form of additional taxation against lords or barons who failed to provide military manpower to John. John would also stand up against the papal candidate Stephen Langton for the Archbishop of Canterbury, the senior bishopric in England. This led to John being excommunicated from the Catholic Church, 
causing religion to be suspended in England for a lengthy period of time, and this would put fear into those who were denied the ability to go to church and practice Christian worship. John was certainly not a lazy man, and he was definitely a man with agency. The closure of Christian practice and his excommunication meant that he could confiscate church property unchallenged and use the wealth to fund his military campaigns. Although many common people in the land found John's jovial and flippant attitude towards the barons quite endearing and amusing, the absence of the church meant that the people felt more exposed to the operations of the devil without the proper Christian routine to follow and protect them. Almost every bishop left their post and the people were now living in fear of evil. So now the common people also felt that they were suffering under John's rule. The barons of the lands were plotting a rebellion and even Philip II of France was being encouraged to invade England in order to depose John with the Pope's blessing. Things were looking extremely bleak for John and he would need to consider an act of great humility in order to survive this situation. So he switched his attitude by publicly accepting Cardinal Stephen Langton as the Archbishop of Canterbury and as such Cardinal Langton would perform a ceremony of absolution for the king himself. Further to this, John would recognise the Pope as his overlord and hold the Kingdom of England as a fief of the Holy See. This extreme turn of events would protect King John from the potential invasion of the French, as the Pope could no longer support it with John now at his heel. Robin Hood Robin Hood is a legendary character in English folklore, famously outlawed by the Sheriff of Nottingham and living the life of a man outside the law, looting the rich and redistributing the booty to the poor. Many historians doubt the existence of Robin Hood, but his legend surely owes much to the situation existing in England at this time and it is likely that the fact that the prince to whom the Sheriff of Nottingham was the subject to, was named John, is not just pure coincidence. King John was all about raising money, whether it be through scootage against the barons who could not provide military resource for John's hunger for military success, or whether it be through the sale of ecclesiastic property during the years of estrangement from the Catholic Church. John had shown himself throughout his life to be a man who would easily swap his allegiances if it served to help himself. As such, John's character was seen as a king who could not be trusted, and who was self-serving, and who would look to extort wealth from whomever he believed that he could get away with it from. So Robin Hood's character definitely represents the antithesis of King John. Robin Hood is also portrayed as being loyal to King Richard, so this actually sets his legend earlier than King John's reign and during the reign of his older brother, Richard the Lionheart. We know that Richard was often absent from England and that John was an opponent of the representative selected by King Richard I, the Lord Chancellor William de Longchamp. With Robin Hood portrayed in literature as an opponent of tyranny, Therefore, King John is able to be portrayed as a tyrant ruler. 
The Baron's March. The legend of Robin Hood was likely a popular legend created by a disenchanted population and a population living in the lands of highly frustrated barons who were losing their fortunes due to this unscrupulous king. King John was attempting to gather money to support military campaigns, especially against France, in his attempts to regain his lost Angevin lands. The icing on the cake was the financing of the Holy Roman Emperor Otto IV's campaign against the French, which he ultimately lost. So the money that John had taken from the population had been invested in a failed project. The power of the population in any kingdom can often be a concern for the king whose subjects do not always blindly follow their ruler, especially if they believe that they can overthrow a king and support an opponent. A hundred years ago, at the beginning of the 12th century, John's great-grandfather ruled England as King Henry I. Henry was the son of William the Conqueror, a man with quite the reputation as a tyrannical ruler of the subjugated English population. But even as the son of a ruthless king, King Henry I recognised the requirement to maintain the loyalty of his barons by establishing a set of rules by which the barons could expect legal protection against potential exploitation of taxation by the king. These rules were contained in a charter called the Charter of Liberties and the barons under King John would look to cite this charter in their struggle with him. It was in the spring of the year 1215 that the barons assembled in the town of Stamford in Lincolnshire with the intent to march on London and demand a negotiation with King John. On their southward march, the barons gathered more and more support until they finally reached the walls of the city of London. When they arrived, they discovered that the people of London were supportive of their cause and so they allowed the protesters to enter. And so King John's capital city was now occupied by the barons. This action by the barons forced King John into a position of forced negotiations, should he wish to prevent civil war. Magna Carta In the meadow which is called Runnymede, between the towns of Windsor and Staines, on the 15th day of June in the year 1215, King John met with his barons and attached his royal seal to the Articles of the Barons and subsequently authorised its copying and distribution. The barons then swore an oath of fealty to their king, King John. The content of the Charter was essentially a reiteration of the Charter of Liberties issued by King Henry I over a hundred years previous, but what initially started out as a protest by the barons of the country, was reworded to include the rights of every freeman in the country. The ability of the king to abuse the privilege of scootage was now reasonably limited, and the ability of the king to imprison someone without trial was now deemed illegal. 63 clauses were written into this particular charter which touched many areas of feudal life in a bid to establish a level playing field between the king and his subjects that was not open to abuse. And a council of barons was appointed to be able to police the adherence to the charter. 
the Charter would re-establish the rights of the Church and reaffirm that secular law was separate from ecclesiastic law. Taxation laws could not be altered unless a council of landowners approved it, and also any fines that were distributed must remain proportionate and must be agreed on by a trusted council of local men. And they didn't even need to be noblemen. Also, the restrictions of abuse by the king would also apply to the barons in their own treatment of their subjects. So this charter sought to protect the rights of many and not just the top-level nobles. Central to the entire charter, though, was the rights of the barons and their ability to be taxed by the king and the rights of inheritance. The barons understood the fact that King John was now operating with papal approval. The Pope was indifferent to the plight of the barons as he knew that with finance, John could raise a significant crusader army, which was an attractive thing for the Pope. John had a reputation for taking sexual advantage of the female family members of his barons. It wasn't unheard of for a king to be sexually promiscuous and to take advantage of the women in his kingdom to whom he took a liking to. But it wasn't heard of that a king would do this to the wives and daughters of his nobles. Still, with all this hatred towards the king, the barons understood that they couldn't depose him, and so they sought to force him into a negotiation. Aftermath So the barons had it approved by King John that disputes over the content of the Charter would be arbitrated by the council of 25 barons that were also in place to police the adherence to the Charter. Just three months after signing the Charter, King John had appealed to Pope Innocent III to have the Charter annulled on the basis that he had been made to sign it under duress and the fact that a council of barons presiding over the king's behaviour was a block on his sacred kingly rights. Unsurprisingly, the Pope supported the annulment, and so the barons were put back to square one. Civil war was now inevitable. The issue with any kind of war against John is that John had had a lifelong enemy in the King of France, so the French would be interested in supporting opponents of John, even if they were his own barons. John had been a constant thorn in the side of the French since the French confiscated his continental lands at the beginning of his reign. So within months, King Philip II of France offered his support to the barons in their struggle against King John of England. In return, Philip would ask the barons to accept his son, Louis, as their next king. Louis, nicknamed the Lion, would prepare an army for the invasion of England. With the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cardinal Stephen Langton, absent from England, and Pope Innocent III reaching the end of his life, a papal legate was sent to oversee the affairs of England. The legate was called Cardinal Guala Bicchieri, and he would be quick to condemn Louis the Lion's plans to invade England. Louis invaded in the year 1216 nonetheless, and he marched on London, where he would be proclaimed by the English nobles as King Louis I of England. 
Cardinal Guala Bicchieri was quick to excommunicate Louis for his actions. King John had fled north into the countryside and it was reported that while in Lincolnshire, the county where the March of the Barons had begun in the previous year, that he lost his treasured possessions in the sea. It does appear to be true that he caught a fever which led to dysentery and this claimed his life at the age of 49. With John now dead, it became obvious to the nobility of England that there was no longer a need for the excommunicated King Louis. And so the nation turned against Louis before he could even be officially crowned. Instead, they would get behind King John's eldest son, the nine-year-old Henry. Henry was a bloodline heir, but also a minor, meaning that the barons could influence him more easily than the adult Louis. John is said to have requested that the English knight William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, act as a regent to Henry. Marshall had always endeavoured to stay loyal to the crown, under John's father Henry II and under his brother Richard. He also maintained loyalty to John, despite John having turned against him temporarily during their tenure together. If anyone could be trusted, it would be Marshall. Marshall would continue the civil war for the English crown against Louis the Lion and he would emerge victorious, leading to a peace negotiation where the English crown would pay Louis the Lion a large amount of money to leave England and renounce his claim to the throne. John's son could now be undisputedly recognised as King Henry III. Legacy The Charter of the Year 1215 was reissued now that the dust had settled and was referred to as the Magna Carta to differentiate it from other charters used. Magna Carta being the Latin name which translates to Great Charter. The young King Henry III was made to approve the Charter in 1217 and then again in 1225 when he reached his majority. Magna Carta was not a particularly new concept and as a physical document was not particularly unique. What sets Magna Carta aside is that when it was raised during the reign of King John, it was at the behest of the barons instead of the king himself. Similar charters that structure aspects of the relationship between the English king and his subjects had existed at least back to the reign of King Ethelred the Unready at the turn of the 11th century. The part of the charter that is deemed to be the most influential is the aspect that deals with the control of taxation and that the king was no longer permitted to raise taxes at will without the approval of the people who were directly responsible for paying them. Magna Carta was resurrected centuries later to be used by the English parliamentarians against their King Charles I during the English Civil War in the 17th century. It also travelled across the Atlantic to England's colonies in North America and as such leaves an imprint of itself in the laws of the US Constitution. So the dramatic nature of Magna Carta's creation coupled with the influence it would have had on more modern constitutions, have made it into the highly regarded moment in history that is frequently remembered today.
Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast on the Magna Carta. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to support the podcast, then please go to our Patreon page and consider making a monthly contribution. It really does help. And um, if you do make a a monthly contribution, you will become a, a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you may qualify for the gifts and rewards that we give out to our patrons. And uh, just go over to uh, the History of the World Podcast.com website and uh, click on the Patreon link to learn more. Uh, this week's episode, a very uh, significant episode in the story of diplomacy and uh, in, the, in the story of democracy uh, in world history. Um, next week, we'll be turning our attentions to a different episode of British history, somewhat a little bit later on. We'll be talking about the uh, the first war of Scottish independence, uh, invoking great uh, romantic stories about William Wallace and Robert the Bruce and their struggles against uh, King Edward Longshanks. So uh, not to be missed. The Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup is a competition uh, involving 64 ancient teams and uh, down to a voting process um, conducted by you wonderful people, the History of the World podcast listeners. On our social media pages, we get closer and closer to finding out who the Ancient World Cup champions will be. We're currently in the round of 16 and this week's match was between the Parthians and the Anglo-Saxons. The Parthians, of course, um, they conquered the Seleucids uh, for the lands of Persia and ruled them quite competently until their eventual overthrow by the Sasanians. And the Anglo-Saxons, very similarly, they moved into the lands of the Romano-Britons in the island of Great Britain. They ruled it very competently for a number of centuries until they in turn were overthrown by the Normans. Now, let's have a look at the results and who goes through to the quarterfinals. Now, thank you very much to 66 of you who voted. And uh, I can announce that the winners with 61% of the vote were the Anglo-Saxons. I thought it would be a lot closer than that. I must admit, I thought the Parthians were going to run the Anglo-Saxons very close and, and, and I even thought that they would win it. But that unfortunately, they've been pushed to one side by the Anglo-Saxons who now have the very daunting prospect of meeting the Romans in the quarterfinals. So uh, that will be uh, at a later date. Next week, the match will be the next round of 15 match between the Mycenaeans and the Athenians. So it's an all-Greek affair. The Mycenaeans, of course, were the first major recognised culture of Greek lands and um, they were the eventual conquerors of the Minoans. Uh, they took control of the of many of the Greek islands and were in control of the Greek mainland until the late Bronze Age collapse. Um, the late Bronze Age collapse brought about a dark age in that region of the world and eventually these city-states or uh, as we may wish to call them the, the polis of the far south of the Balkan Peninsula including 
the Spartans, but then also the the most powerful one initially were the Athenians, and uh, the Athenians have brought so much to our world and the modern world with their eventual um, introduction of uh, philosophy and, um, of course, the fact that they stood up against the mighty Persians. So um, an interesting matchup between the Mycenaeans and the Athenians. If you want to take part, if you want to vote for who you would like to be uh, advanced to the quarterfinals out of those two teams, just simply go to the History of the World podcast Facebook page, the unofficial Facebook fan group, uh, the Twitter feed and the Instagram profile for the History of the World podcast. You can link directly through to all of those accounts and more by going to the History of the World podcast.com website and clicking on Interact. Listener messages and reviews. I've got a few to get through this week, so I'm just going to uh, just going to pull them up here. Um, I, I'm. I'm not always well prepared. I'm often clicking around while I'm trying. I'm sort of blagging it, if you like. Uh, James Patrick Killo has written in and put, Hi, I've just finished listening to every episode so far. And while I wait for more to come out, I was wondering if you could re- recommend another similar podcast that takes you similarly in chronological order through history in order to continue improving my general understanding of the overall sequence of events and developments without delving too deeply into any one era or area of the world. Thanks. James, I, I don't really know of um, any other podcasts that do what mine does. Um, there might be more out there. Um, I must admit, I don't often search for other podcasts as vigorously as I used to uh, if I go back a few years there certainly was the podcast history of our world um, which appears to have been abandoned and, and, and inaccessible now perhaps it just looks like it's been abandoned sadly it was it was a very good project in its day I, I felt um, and probably the only one that I've stumbled across that is sort of trying to do the same thing that my one did but unfortunately I believe it is no more so yes there's not really a lot else but anyway thanks for writing in James of course if anyone from the History of the World podcast listener community uh, hot worlders as we like to call you um, has any suggestions please let us know and we'll we'll let James know in the next uh, in the next broadcast next week Colton Weaver has written in and put hello good sir I've been listening to the podcast for about three months now and I started volume four about two weeks ago, which I listened to during my morning shifts at work. I just wanted to say that I have enjoyed the podcast a lot and find the delivery of it to be perfect for understanding the historical information being said and its significance. I also wanted to give a nod to Colton from Kitchener, who left a comment early in volume four, maybe the unscripted one. Ontario, which is about three hours southeast from me, and who shares, who also shares the same name. Yes, Colton, of course. I also wanted to mention that I go to Brock University, which is probably not familiar, but it's named after Sir Isaac Brock, who was a British general in the War of 1812. This being said, if you need any books on the War of 1812, when you get to that period, just shoot me a line. My great-grandfather, 
wrote a few books on that war and its history. I'd love to find out more, Colton. Thanks for that. The area in which I live also has a lot of literature on the war since it took place right in our backyards over here in the Niagara region. Anyway, cheers, mate. Keep up the podcast and I wish you all the best of luck in 2023. P.S. I cannot review on Spotify, but I did give you a five-star rating. Thank you, Colton. I'm always begging for ratings and reviews, so I appreciate that. Dan Zivoyanu um, has written in and put, Hi Chris, my name is Dan Zivoyanu from Bucharest in Romania. I recently started listening to your podcast while driving. I like it. I like how you choose the relevant information, how you explain the hypothesis with reference that history that is not linear. And also I like the way you present it, your pace and tonality. So I'm a bit behind, only in the middle of volume one. I realise now your focus must be on whatever you are working on nowadays for your podcast. Medieval, but being encouraged by your message to write to you, here I am. Regarding episode eight of volume one, I was thinking of another amazing information I got from another podcast about global warning. Scientists there were explaining the ice ages and the fact that the cool planet we have couldn't be possible without two polar ice caps and different continents as opposed to one great continent that function like a cooling machine uh, cooling the water that circulates through the land masses keep up the good work kind regards dan thank you very much dan thanks for the little scientific um insight there i'm, I'm no expert really on that kind of thing but uh, obviously uh, have a bit of basic knowledge and um, i know that what you're saying is uh, is quite logical so thank you uh, Will Sparks has written in, Chris, hello from Nashville, Tennessee. I've just started listening to your podcast. I'm currently on Volume 1, Episode 10. Uh, I was turned on to your work through a search for additional content, having read the popular book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. I honestly wasn't sure if I would enjoy your podcast as much as I enjoyed the book, but I've been pleasantly surprised. It's obviously you are passionate about your research and place an abundance of care into the curation of your show. Thank you for helping people like me get through our daily commute. Will Sparks, yes, sadly, often my diction can be leave a lot to be desired as I'm, I often get quite tongue-tied. And I think like most podcasters, I, you know, um, I end up recording the same sentence, you know, about 10 times before... I'm satisfied with it and I can move on. But um, yes, thank you so much for just recognising the fact that, um, you know, I do certainly care about the quality of every episode. Um, I I wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. So thank you, William, for writing in and and recognising that. Victor K has written in and put, Greetings, Chris. My name is Victor. I'm a chemist and I've studied in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I must say your podcast got me so interested in biology and evolution that I started to study it too. Your podcast is well organised and narrated and of course you have a very lovely accent. Don't let others think otherwise. Seems like my next step will be studying history as well. I would like to thank you for all the hard work and motivation you give me to study other disciplines. Your work is significant and important. Keep up. Thank you, Victor. A very kind and, and quite humbling message. And, and I'm so glad that um, you know projects like mine are inspiring others to study more. It's a, it's a great thing and uh, probably the ultimate compliment. So thank you. 
Um, reviews. Um, Dimsy Rupsy from Norway has uh, has reviewed. It's great to get um, uh, reviews from countries that I, I wouldn't normally see in the review list. So thank you. Uh, has put brilliant ten episodes in, and I'm hooked. And has uh, given the podcast five star rating. So thank you very much for that. Really do appreciate that. And everyone that listens to the podcast. Um, even just by listening to it, you get the listener numbers up and it, and it becomes more exposed. But certainly if you rate and review the podcast, that really does help it to get exposed to new listeners. And of course, any financial contributions that you make um, certainly allow me to invest in better materials in, in which I can um, give you a much better rounded and, and, and much more thoroughly researched episode each week. So I really do appreciate that. It's not just uh, it's not just chit chat. Genuinely, this is what you do for the podcast when you do any of those things. Um, I need to give great thanks to those uh, uh, those new patrons this week who now have contributed towards the financial success of this podcast and as such you are now inducted into the history of the world podcast Illuminati you are Mikkanen Alana Jarvis and Alan T. Hock so thank you um, and I apologise if I've pronounced any of your names wrong I'm sure it's highly likely that I have uh, but um, yeah I apologise but uh, at least I have uh, attempted to recognise uh, your efforts to support the project so thank you so much and uh, welcome all into the History of the World podcast Illuminati I will certainly get in touch with you if you've qualified for any rewards or uh, now or in the future so thank you so much next week it will be the story of the first war of Scottish independence so we'll be talking all things um William Wallace like you know famously uh, portrayed uh, by Mel Gibson in the film Braveheart many years ago and um of course Robert the Bruce and uh, the the big what you know why are they so celebrated in Scottish folklore and this really is the episode that will that will look more deeply at that aspect uh, so really and um, you know really a real medieval story of uh of uh great uh romantic significance so uh i i implore you to tune in next week and enjoy that one but until then thanks for listening and don't forget be good the history of the world podcast written and presented by chris hasler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World Podcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.